Here in Ezra 7, we have Ezra coming on the scene, Ezra himself coming on the scene for the first time in the book of Ezra. And let's just remember the historical context here. Seventy years, Judah were in captivity in Babylon, and then there was this uh, great command for them to return, and God enabled that to happen. But very few actually went back. The majority of them stayed there in in Babylon because the way the book of Esther finishes they were there quite uh, popular they were up in the banking system according to archaeological discoverers and those who did go back were not that committed and Ezra then comes on the scene this would have been quite some time after the 70 years had uh, had ended you can work that out from the early verses here in chapter 7 that Ezra the son of Seraiah, well, he wasn't the actual son of Seraiah, he was more like the grandson, even the great-grandson. Seraiah was the, the priest who we read was, was killed um, by the king of Babylon when uh, Jerusalem fell. So this would have been uh, two or three generations later. And he doesn't give up hope. He doesn't think, yeah, well, that just didn't work out. He has the ambition to try to do something about it. And he's described in verse 6 as a ready scribe. The Hebrew word for scribe there doesn't just literally mean someone who writes stuff down. It can mean a teacher, um, somebody who, who yes, who, who writes out God's law, who, who teaches it. And he was a ready scribe. He was an enthusiast. He, he was willing to be used in this. And he clearly understood that Israel's or Judah's attitude to God's law was crucial for the re-establishment of, of God's kingdom there. And there is a theme that runs throughout Ezra and Nehemiah, and it is this phrase, the hand of God, and this phrase occurs quite a number of times, that there was a power greater than individual human effort at work here to enable Judah to return. And you've got it in chapter 6, verse 22, the immediate context of this chapter 7. The Lord had made them joyful. Now, again, that is God acting upon human hearts. And turned the heart of the king of Assyria unto them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God. So then, there was this action of God on human hearts. And the proverb says that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it where he wants. So then there is an element to which God is at work in human minds uh, over and above human effort. Now, historically, we as a community have been very uh, wary about the idea of the Holy Spirit. For one thing, the Pentecostal idea of pulling, you know, pulling rabbits out of hats and all this kind of stuff and uh, miracles and raising the dead and talking in tongues and all this. I mean, th this is a nonsense what they're doing and this is not the the gifts, the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit, they are not around today. And there is also another concern that uh, Luther and Calvin, particularly Calvin, had the idea that the Holy Spirit just sort of zaps people, that one guy is walking down the street and the Holy Spirit zaps him and turns him into a believer, and another guy is walking down the street and that doesn't happen to him. Now, that is also not quite how God works, but because on, on that basis then we're simply little puppets and God's pulling the strings with us and spirituality is really not of ourselves but we're just being manipulated by God now, now that is not right 
it's quite clear from the whole tenor of Bible teaching that we are asked to make some personal election, personal choice in this life. But it is also true that if you leave it that it's just us making free will decisions, then salvation would be by works. There is an element to which God is greater than, than us and our individual sort of human uh, efforts. Otherwise, salvation would purely be uh, by works and the, uh, the strongest would win. Now, that also, as I say, can't, uh, can't be the case. So then, we have, I think, here what I would call the Old Testament concept of what is called the gift of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. But there is an element to which the hand of God was at work in, in human hearts, human lives, making the kings of Babylon and Assyria uh, decide to do things for God's people that, humanly speaking, seem crazy, giving them uh, all this support to go back to the land, to rebuild the temple, giving them an open check, basically, to do what they wanted, uh, etc. And you also see it in the, the personal lives of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, Ezra was a ready scribe. He was a willing uh, worker. He, he was uh, willing to be used by, by God. <clears throat> and verse 6 of chapter 7, The king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. But, when you come to verses 9 and 10, you read again that he makes this journey going from Babylon to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him, verse 10, because Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the Lord of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Ezra's statutes and judgments. So he of his own free will prepared his heart. He set his heart is the idea. He uh, resolved that this is what he would do. And he does it personally, first of all, that he himself would seek the law of the Lord and do it, and then he would teach, teach it to others. And that is, of course, the, uh, the, the basis for our teaching of anyone else, that we ourselves have sought God's law and resolved to do it, and then to teach in Israel those things. Now, he resolved to, to seek the law of the Lord. Jewish tradition says that it was Ezra who collated all the books of the Bible at that time and got them all in order, rewrote them, wrote it all out clearly, because after all that time in Babylon, generally many Jews had forgotten the law of their God, and perhaps the actual documents were not readily available. So it's said that, and it's, this is Jewish tradition, that he really got the whole uh, books of Chronicles, etc., written up and uh, the history of the kings, and you can see in the books of Chronicles how they are uh, sort of very relevant to the Jews going back to their land, etc. There's all this information about the genealogies, etc. Now, he set his heart to, to do that, to gather together the, the books of the law of the Lord, and in verse 14, the king recognizes that. He says, well, you're going off to Jerusalem with my blessing, according to the Lord of your God, which is in your hand. So, almost literally, he, he had the books in his hand. And there he was, going off to Jerusalem, having resolved himself to do it, to, to seek the law of the Lord, and to do it himself, and to teach these things in Israel. 
So he was maybe a kind of an academic, that he saw the need for God's law to be taught and, and to be accessible, and he wanted to, to do this, and he set his heart to do this. And because of that, the hand of his God was upon him, and the whole thing was blessed absolutely incredibly. So the, the long letter that we read here is quite breathtaking, really, that he's given this letter from Artaxerxes. Uh, it's a, degree, uh, a decree that is backed up by the seven councillors, verse 14, and that he is to take with him 15, the silver and gold, which the king himself has freely given to him, all the silver and gold that you can find in all the province of Babylon. So he was welcome to take as much silver and gold as he could get his hands on, along with the free will offerings of, uh, of the people and of the priests. And not only so, he could take as much silver and gold as he wanted from the province of Babylon. Uh, he wasn't really held accountable, verse 18. He basically, the king says, look, you can buy what you need for, for the service of your God, and whatever's left over, what, actually whatever you want to do, whatever seems good to you, you do it. You, you spend it as you want, no need for an account, etc. And then he goes on, verse 20, whatever else might be necessary, the king's treasure house will uh, sort this out for you. And also, 21, whilst you're on your way, um, you can go to the, the treasurers, which are beyond the river, beyond the Euphrates, on the, the side of uh, Judah, and whatever you request of them, it shall be done speedily by them. Verse 23, whatever God commands, as you understand God's commands, uh, this has got to be, be done. It's got to be provided for materially. And 24, you will be tax-free. You will not have to pay taxes on anything. Whatever you want to do, you can do. You don't have to pay taxes on it. And absolutely whatever you, you want will be given. Now, that's pretty breathtaking. That's pretty breathtaking. And here we, we, we pause to make it relevant to us. Here was a man, Ezra, who had resolved what he wanted to do, to gather together God's law and to do it himself and to teach it to, to the people of Israel back there in, in Judah. And God just enabled him hugely. Any material need that he had was, was met. And, you know, he could not have dreamt for more. I want to remind you of the parable of the friend at midnight. It's obviously a poor man because his neighbor comes to him and, uh, sorry, or someone comes to him on a long journey and he needs to give the, the unexpected visitor some food and he's so poor he doesn't have bread to give him. So he goes to his rich neighbor, even though it's the middle of the night and wakes the guy up, and wakes the whole household up therefore, and the rich neighbor says, yeah, look, you can have whatever you want. Now, the context of that is that whatever you need for God's work, whatever you need in order to help another, will be provided materially. Now, this is a principle, and here you see it lived out in the experience of Ezra. 
I would like to suggest that very often we have a sort of a vague idea that oh yeah I could do this or that needs doing or whatever and it's normally our sense that ah oh, but we don't have the resources it's that which stymies it and stops it dead in its tracks but if we are properly motivated whatever you want for doing God's work if it's based around a genuine understanding of God's word he will provide it was Mike Floyd from South Africa who many years ago said to me in the context of a project I was trying to uh, fundraise from uh, you know Duncan I've never seen a true project for the Lord that failed for lack of funds and that may sound uh, unusual but it's true and I've remembered what Mike said he's probably forgotten he said it to me but uh, I've remembered that for many years and we're not talking necessarily that you and I need millions or whatever but don't ever think that oh yeah we couldn't do that well we just haven't obviously got those kind of resources if you are convinced and resolute in your principle based upon God's word that this is right according to God's law and God's word he will sort all that side out and take it from me who took many years to learn this but take it from me that even with every man's hand against you you will be given what is needed if really you are genuinely motivated in God's work so you may think oh yeah but who am I I'm just some little person I'm caught up with my life and looking after kids and all the rest of it but we are all called uh, to respond to God's word and to be proactive in his service so often it seems to me there are very fine intentions held by many genuine people but they just remain an idea that comes into the head and flies out again or that you might just uh, one evening discuss with somebody over coffee or whatever with, with greater enthusiasm but well it never comes to anything now that is not how it should be if we are reading God's Word daily and if we have prepared our heart to seek God's law his word and to do it ourselves then you will perceive what you are called to do one of the saddest things I see in the lives of a lot of believers is that they don't have any sense of what they are called to do we've all been given talents according to the Lord's parable and we are to go out and trade them and it was the one talent man who was condemned not any of the people who actually tried to do something admittedly some were more successful than others but not one of them who tried to trade their Lord's talents were condemned in fact it always worked out for them somehow it was the man who said nah I yeah okay nice idea but no not for me I shall do nothing it was him who in the end is sent away sadly so I'm not saying yeah, salvation by works or anything like that what I am saying is that God's grace is such that if we believe it and of course we have to believe it if we believe it we must act we cannot be passive to it or else faith is not faith you know salvation is it by faith or works it's by faith it's not by works but faith without works is dead in other words yes it is by pure faith that I believe that by God's grace his total sovereign grace I shall be saved and I shall live forever but if that is how it is you, you cannot shrug your shoulders and walk away indifferent 
and just carry on living basically the life that everybody else lives. It must take a grip on you, and of course you will respond, because who could be passive in the face of such, such an amazing grace? So for Ezra, well, he was, as I say, a, somewhat of an academic, that he had this idea, to, uh, quite rightly, to uh, gather together the law of the Lord, to codify it, to get it in his hand, as we saw in verse 14, and to do it himself, and then to go to Israel and to, to teach the people of Judah who had returned there uh, how they should live by that law. So then, that was his calling, and your calling, my calling, may be different. But all the same, we are called to action. We are called to do something concrete in this world. And not just having a passing idea that, ah, yeah, wouldn't it be cool if we could do this or that? Oh, hang, we can do that, don't have the money. Or, we simply haven't got the resources, because it's not always about money. God will provide. If you have set your heart verse 10, prepared his heart, set your heart, the hand of the Lord will be upon you, and way over and above what you can do, way over and above your personal strength of resolution, it will all work out, it really will, he will provide, and you will go from one project to another, to another, to another, and somehow it all works out. And you become more focused, instead of yeah, the service of God being something that you, you give a bit of your time to, but most of your time you spend on your career, on your holidays, on your plans for self-enjoyment, you become more focused. You realize as you get older and as you get more experienced in this hand of God upon you, that there is huge potential, huge potential for every single one of us. And that he really is prepared, God is really prepared to do amazing things for you and me, so that we can do his work. Now, <clears throat> it didn't, uh, the wonder of all this doesn't just stop at material things. I would like to pay a lot of attention to verse 25. This letter from Artaxerxes says this, verse 25, You, Ezra, after the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, again that phrase, there he is with the books of God in his hand, you are to set up magistrates and judges which may judge all the people that are beyond the river. That means the people on the Judah side of the Euphrates River. All the people between the Euphrates and the Mediterranean. All such as know the Lord of your God, and teach you them that know them not. Whosoever will not do the law of your God, let judgment be executed speedily upon him, whether it be death, banishment, confiscation of goods, or imprisonment. So, it seems to me, reading that, that the king is really saying, look, Ezra, you can get the whole of the territory between... Uh, well, beyond the river, beyond the Euphrates, the whole uh, uh, sphere of the, of the empire that went beyond the river, which was, in fact, the land promised to Abraham from the Nile to the Euphrates, which was then at that time all under the control of uh, Artaxerxes, you can teach that whole area about your God, and you can insist that the religion of your God is accepted there, and 
teach the people there that don't know the laws of your God. Now you could read verse 25 as if the king is just saying to Ezra, well, you can uh, enforce the law of your God amongst the Jewish people. Uh, but that is not really what it says. I think that interpretation has been offered in some of the commentaries because the implications that it's actually saying all the people beyond the river, beyond the Euphrates, between the Euphrates and the Nile, uh, are to be brought to, to know your God. Uh, I mean, people just, the commentators just think, oh, no, they, he couldn't have meant that. But the text does seem to say that. <clears throat> Set up magistrates and judges which may judge all the people that are beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God, and teach those who do not know them. Well, I would suggest that uh, this is in line with the kings of, of Babylon and, and Persia, as we know from the, the book of Daniel. Time and again, they made these kind of decrees, didn't they? That the God of the Jews is the greatest God. And their kingdom was blessed, I think, because of uh, that attitude they had. And several times in the book of Daniel you read this, don't you? That the decrees go out that everyone is to accept the law of God and uh, the law of the God of Israel. He's the best and he's the greatest, and etc. And I would see this in the context of those decrees. This is another one. Now, that's amazing. Because really... God was enabling, potentially, the re-establishment of the kingdom of God at that time. And that fits in with how so many of the prophecies of Judah's return from Babylon that we have in Jeremiah and Ezekiel would appear to be kingdom prophecies. We are familiar with them in terms of them describing the future kingdom of God on the earth. But I think that in their initial Fulfillment. They spoke of what God intended to happen when there was the return from, from Babylon. And of course the final chapters of Ezekiel where you have this temple described or I would say not predicted but commanded. It is the law of the house in Ezekiel 43. But that wonderful temple which clearly features a messianic figure within it that that was to be fulfilled uh, by the returning Jews, the returning exiles. And here you have the king, Artaxerxes, basically saying the law of the God of Israel, as is uh, written there in the, the book of his law, which uh, Ezra's now got in his hand, that is to be enforced for all the people who live in my territory beyond the Euphrates, that is, in the territory of the land promised to Abraham from the Euphrates to the Nile. But what happened? Israel would not. The whole record of the returned exiles is tragic, quite honestly. Um, Malachi particularly makes it clear that they, yes, they returned and they built some kind of a temple, but it was obviously not the temple that was uh, predicted in, or was required, or sh shall I say, commanded in the last chapters of Ezekiel. And as the books of Ezra and Nehemiah go on to make clear, the Jews that returned were all looking for their own personal benefit, and they had to be forced to rebuild the, uh, the walls of Jerusalem, etc. And really, they, they intermingled with the, with the pagan nations again. They forgot their God. And really, it didn't work out. But the huge potential was there 
and actually so much of the Old Testament is really about this huge potential that God had set up for the kingdom of God to be re-established at that time. Now, okay, in his wisdom and foreknowledge, I, I guess he realized that it would not be, um, but all the same, it was potentially set up. And how, what, what a huge waste of potential, all because of human small-mindedness. You know, the, the Jews went back, as we, we read later on in Ezra and throughout Nehemiah, they got their little bit of land and property, got their farmsteads going, and that was all that they were interested in. And they didn't want to see the bigger picture. And that is tragically similar to our situation. The language of the returning exiles is often used in the New Testament about our response to the gospel. That we are those who have come out from Babylon and are now on a journey to re-establish God's kingdom. So much potential is there for you and me. And the fact that the majority of people may waste it does not mean that you and I need to go the same way. Believe me, you and I have got far more potential in God's service than we realize. And the immediate reaction, as I say, is to, is to say, ah, yeah, but I don't have the resources. It's not for me, or ah, yeah, but you see. This wonderful letter from Artaxerxes that we just read here in, in Ezra 7, as I say, it leaves you breathless. Because it, it really is saying, whatever you need humanly, believe me, I will provide.